As I'm sure you've probably noted in your bulletin this morning, we have a collage of scriptures to read this morning. And if you don't want to be flipping back and forth in your Bible, well then just listen to to the word as we speak. But we begin in Matthew, the 28th chapter, verses 8 through 10. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. In Mark 16, verses 1 through 6. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And then Luke picks up on 24th chapter, verses 14 and 15. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. John 21, 12 through 14. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Acts 2, 14, verses 22 through 24, and verse 32. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it. 
and 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. 1 Peter 1.3 Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 John 1.1 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Revelations 1, 17 through 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. Now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. May God bless the reading of his word. Real quick before we dive in, did you catch any themes running through all that hodgepodge of scripture that we just read? Uh, and if you did, would you be brave enough to shout out what you heard kind of commonly running through all that? Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Yeah, we're going to talk more about all those in a minute. Uh, we are in this new series that's also halfway over with because this is going to be a kind of a short one and it's got a very specific focus it's called prepared and it's very just practical stuff about being prepared to give an answer for your faith we said you know the how to share your faith without losing your mind you know we talked last week about how a lot of times it feels like a pretty daunting task in our day and time in our culture to share your faith because of the just really strange times we live in when you consider uh, you know the history and and even the current world situation we live in a very peculiar space and time where there's a whole country of people who are very familiar with Christianity and they have some opinion formed of it whether it's accurate or not and and most everyone has an opinion about Christians about churches about religion, 
they, if you grow up in this country, it's just, it's part of our history, and uh, people are just familiar with it. And most of them have their mind already made up, and so it makes it kind of challenging sometimes. You can't pique their curiosity. You can't say, hey, have you heard about this, uh, you know, Jesus guy? They're going to say, yeah. <laughs> and so, you, you don't get the you know, what the advantage that maybe they get in some parts of the world where they haven't, and there might be some curiosity there. No, here, even if they're completely wrong about Jesus, they think that they know what there is to know about God. And so it's kind of a challenge sometimes to share our faith. Faith doesn't come up very much in our world. It's kind of like, uh, well, you know, this time of year, maybe more people are brave enough to talk about politics. But, you know, there's just certain things you don't bring to the family dinner table, right? Uh, and so, you know, this is one of those things. It's not very popular. And usually when it comes up, it's somebody that wants to take a shot at your faith. And they want you to know, you know, kind of how they feel about it. And so they'll make some passing remark about your faith. And then they expect the conversation to move on. It's a kind of a rhetorical statement. They're not really looking for any response from you. They just kind of want to take a jab at your faith and move on. And we've probably all experienced that at some level or another. Someone has uh, made you feel a little bit, you know, substandard or whatever for your faith. You know, we talked about last week the kind of comments that you get sometimes at work or at school or wherever, you know, of, uh, well, so-and-so is not going to do that because, you know, she's a church girl. Or, you know, he's not going to meet us over there on a Sunday because he's a church guy. He'll be at church. Or, uh, you know, I don't know how you people can believe all that stuff. Or, uh, you know, the Bible's just kind of crazy and it's full of all sorts of weird stuff. I don't see how you can believe all that stuff. I mean, there's just all sorts of little comments that people make about our faith and they expect the conversation to just move on. And we talked about last week, though, that we are instructed to do something. And that was to give an answer for the hope that we have. Peter told us, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. And yet so often in those situations where something comes up and it bothers us, and then on the way home, you know, we think of the perfect response if they ever bring this up again, I've got it ready. And then that next moment never comes or by the time it does, it's a new remark and you weren't prepared for that. And so you go and work on another one in front of the mirror this time and you have it ready. And we just, we go through that and we wish sometimes, I think we all have a desire to defend our faith, to express, you know, look, I don't have all the answers, but I do believe in this thing. And so the, this is a very specific focus in this series of what to say when there's very little time and even less interest. And so if you're coming here today and you weren't here last week, I just need to say that you're kind of coming in on the middle of something. And some of what we say today is not going to be fully informed for you unless you go back and listen to last week's message. And you can do that on cypressstreet.org or you can go if you uh, are a little bit more techie and you want to get use a podcast. We have a podcast that makes it really easy um, to download messages and things. So find last week's message prepared. What's your answer? And we led into this statement last week. And this is kind of where I left you hanging, right? And, uh, and so you've been just 
dying to get here all week, right? <laughs> so we left it with this. And why don't we all read this together? I believe Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead, but I don't believe it because the Bible says so. It's better than that. And so, you know, the first part there is the, the, big, the big part. Just to be prepared. What's the reason for the hope that you have? And we looked at what Peter said was the reason for his hope that ought to be a part of the reason for our hope. And that's simply that we believe Jesus died for our sins and He rose back to life. That's the reason for our hope. And the apostles said clearly to us that if there is no resurrection, then we are a pack of fools at best. That is where all of our hope lies. That Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. So in being prepared to give an answer for our hope and someone says, you know, takes a shot at our faith, we say, well, you know, I don't have all the answers for that. I don't know why there's so many Christians that seem like jerks. But I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. And it's not just because the Bible says so. It's better than that. And we kind of left it hanging there last week. Left you in suspense. And today we tackle that. Why do we believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead? For a long time the church has just said, well, it's because the Bible says so. And we learn it from the time that we're little kids. You know, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And for a long time that's been good enough. Partly because our culture has just accepted the awesomeness of this book for generations. But that's no longer the case. And just as someone, a missionary in another place where they haven't heard about this book, just to go and say, hey, this book is awesome, so you should believe, is lacking something. And really... The reason for our faith is deeper than just the Bible says so. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Why do we believe? Well, first off, we need to just say that if you or anyone you know ever struggles with doubts about all this stuff, you are in good company. You are not alone. I guess, Paul, maybe some of us are blessed with a really childlike faith that is just awesome. And, and, I, and I envy you, <laughs> if that's you, and you're here today. But there are many people in this world that either harbor some doubts from time to time, or, you know, maybe they're all-out skeptics. And they come to church to, either because that's what they always did, and they find comfort in the community or because they're seeking answers uh, you know but most of us it just every now and then something comes up or you know we go through a season where God feels distant or something and, and we just we wonder sometimes and we struggle with doubts and like I say if that's you you're not in bad company even the ones that walked with Jesus struggle with doubts sometimes and I was thinking this week of the most famous one you know one of the infamous disciples that the the foremost infamous disciple being Judas, right? Who betrayed Jesus. But then there's Thomas, whom we know as Doubting Thomas. All right? And, I mean, just the name, you know, just tells you that what we think of Thomas. 
the one who doubted. You know, all of his comrades, the ones he had been through so much with, all said with so much conviction, Thomas, he's alive, we've seen him. And he says, no, I'm not going to believe unless I see him myself, unless I touch him. Doubting Thomas. And Thomas gets a bad rap, but one thing that we forget about Thomas is that there's this season where the apostles were going and they, Jesus said to them, you know, I want to head towards Jerusalem. And, and this was at a time when there was a lot of unrest and a lot of ill will towards Jesus from the religious elites in Jerusalem. And, and the disciples just knew if he went there was going to be trouble. And they begged him not to go. Except Thomas said, come on God, let's go die with him. Let's go die with him. Thomas agreed with all the rest of them that if they went, there was going to be trouble. But he said, come on. Let's go with him. Let's do this with him. I mean, whatever you want to say about that faith, the guy is still willing to walk into a situation with Jesus that, you know, how many of us would be jumping to go into. And it's that Thomas who later struggled to believe. So, I mean, the guy's not a, just a total pushover. He's not a loser. You know, he's not the, the worst of the disciples by any means. He just struggled to believe. And Jesus, when he did come to him and appear to Thomas, he said, Thomas, you believe because you saw me. But blessed are those who will believe who haven't seen. And that's where we find ourselves today. The people who believe, but we haven't seen. We haven't touched. Jesus says, blessed are we. And yet sometimes I find myself praying the prayer that this father once prayed. or Well, he spoke the statement to Jesus directly because Jesus was in front of his face. And this man was asking for healing for his son. And he told Jesus... Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You ever prayed that one? I pray that one sometimes. God, I believe, but help the little parts in me that doubt sometimes. Help me to have a stronger faith. And, you know, it's been a long time, hasn't it? It's been 2,000 years since all this took place. And we live in a world that asks a lot of questions about stuff that happened 2,000 years ago. And, you know, well, how do we know that the Christian leaders didn't just make all this up? How do we know that the Bible is accurate? It seems like it contradicts itself at points. Or, you know, maybe Jesus was just a good man. And how can the average Christian be prepared to answer all those skeptics and all those criticisms and all those questions? And I would you know, suggest that probably none of us in this room, unless you're a closet genius, is going to be jumping at the chance anytime soon to sit down with a panel of you know, atheist historians and, and, uh, and scientists and start having a debate over this stuff. I mean, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of questions and criticisms you'd have to be prepared with some pretty smart sounding answers in. And so most of the time we just don't like to get into it with people. But I do think that it's not good enough just for us to keep saying, 
Well, the Bible says so. Well, the Bible says so. To a world that, you know, is not all that impressed by that. To a world that doesn't hold it in the same regard that we do. And the truth is, we don't just believe because the Bible says so. It's better than that. Now, we read a lot of scripture passages a moment ago. We read from nine separate books of the Bible. Now, a lot of times we talk about this Bible as a book. But in truth, it's a lot more than a book. It's got 66 ancient manuscripts in here. Each of them a unique document of some kind. Some of them are letters. Some of them are records and accounts of things. Some of them are literature, poetry. There's just a really wide variety of genres and authors. And, and they span thousands of years of being written. It's pretty impressive that they all point to the same God. 27 of them are in the New Testament and they all consistently speak to the same major thing that Jesus died and rose again. And like I said, we just read from nine passages that all talked to, you know, we said, what did those have in common? We said that Jesus is alive. Jesus rose from the dead. But it's more than that. Each one of those was an eyewitness account or talked about eyewitness accounts. That there are witnesses, that there are people who saw this with their own eyes and touched with their own hands, shared a meal with this man who had died and was now back to life. This is not just, well, this book says so. This is umpteen different documents by different authors. I mean, the nine different things we read today are believed to have been written by at least seven different authors all saying the same thing now most historians today would die for that kind of evidence on any event that happened 2,000 years ago but of course Christianity is held to a different standard than most historical events and I guess that's permissible seeing as we're claiming something bigger than anyone else ever claimed so Uh, Go ahead, I guess, and hold us to a higher scrutiny. But to just say, well, we believe because the Bible says so, kind of misses something, I think. The only thing that I can think of that a person could say about all that is just to say that, well, all of those. 27 books that all seem to agree that Jesus you know, died and rose back to life were written you know, a long time later after this myth and legend had grown up and, and there weren't any eyewitnesses around to contradict it and so this is just something that the early Christian leaders made up about you know, and they chose this Jewish carpenter uh, to make a bunch of propaganda around and say that he which, why would you choose a Jewish carpenter from a disrespected region of Israel if you were going to concoct something like that? I'm not sure. But let's just entertain the notion for a moment. Is it possible 
that this was just written way later and it was just stuff that people made up. And I want to submit to you that there's not. And I, this, you know, out of all the arguments that I've heard for uh, the, the crucifixion and resurrection and, you know, historically, and this one seems to me the, the most profound and the simplest to remember. And so you've heard me talk about it before, maybe if you were here back at Easter, but that's been a while. And I want to keep bringing this up from time to time because I want us to learn it and memorize it and become comfortable with it because sometime you may get a chance to have a conversation. You may get the chance to say, but I don't believe it just because the Bible says so. It's better than that. And if they start asking you questions after that, you want to be prepared with something, right? So this is something. And if you hated history class, I've got good news for you today. Only one date to remember. And even better than that, it's not a complicated date. You know, usually you're memorizing like, you know, 12, 13, or some weird number, you know, 18, 12, and all these 17, 76, and complicated numbers. Look at this. This is just as easy as it gets, friends. 70 A.D. Everybody say it. 70 A.D. Or if you want to use C.E., depending on who you're talking to, C.E. is the new thing. Current era. They just pretend that uh, the current era is not based on when Jesus was approximately born. But, (laughs) whichever one you want to use will work just fine. 70 A.D., 70 C.E. Now, why does this date matter? Well, we have good reason to believe that the vast majority, if not all, of those 27 New Testament books, documents that are contained in our New Testament, were written before 70 A.D. And here's why. A huge event happened in this year. Huge. Now, at this time in history, the Roman Empire was the big deal. And they, everybody was kind of under their control in the Western world of that day. Which in that day did not include this area over here, of course. But Europe and Asia, most of it in northern Africa, it's all under Roman control, including Israel. In 70 AD, the Romans had enough of Jewish uprisings and unrest. And the emperor at that time, Titus, destroyed the ultimate symbol of Judaism the ultimate part of their worship and their religion and that was the Jewish temple in Jerusalem tore it to pieces hauled off everything in it it was a big deal obviously if you're a Jew which most of the Christians especially in that part of the world were and even throughout the Greek world most of the Christians started out as Jewish people. They were Gentiles too. This was a huge deal. I mean, Moses, David, Solomon, all your history from the tabernacle to the Solomon's temple to the temple being rebuilt when they came back from exile. The temple was the center of Jewish worship where all the symbolism and all the God himself was to dwell. But if you don't believe me about how big of a deal this was, consider that this was even a big deal 
to the Romans. This was not like some footnote. In their, oh, and then we destroyed their temple. Ha ha ha. Just like we did all those other people. No. This was a huge deal for the Romans as well. So much so that they built this huge monument. Arch. The Arch of Titus, it's called. Because it's in memorial of Titus's accomplishment. This whole arch was built to commemorate his destruction of the Jewish temple. In fact, there's artwork on it. Shows the Romans hauling out. You can see a menorah up there probably. These are all the little parts of the temple. All the sacred items of the temple that they just hauled off. Back to Rome. Still a significant site in Rome today. That you can go and visit and see. This was a big deal to Rome. This was a big deal to Christians. Why is it a big deal to you? Today. Just want to submit to you that. If. This had happened. When most of those New Testament books. Had been written. Wouldn't you think we'd read about it? I mean wouldn't you think. That one of those authors of the New Testament would have thought, hey, I could use this. I could point out to people that, in all these Jews that we're trying to witness to and, and win over to our faith, that, hey guys, the temple is not necessary anymore. It's okay that it was torn down. God let it be torn down because Jesus is all that we need. He was the final sacrifice. We no longer need a temple for sacrifices. I mean, it would be too good not to use if you were just getting some propaganda together, right? I mean, why wouldn't you? This was the biggest event. I mean, the Jewish people were crushed by this. Why wouldn't they take advantage of it? But you don't find it mentioned. And so that means that we can safely say that most of the New Testament, if not all, was written before this date, 70 A.D. And that matters because that means that most of the people who saw Jesus die and raise back to life, the hundreds of them that were witnesses to the alive Jesus were still around and living. If it was all a big hoax, there'd be people to say it was a hoax. Legends and myths of this sort don't typically raise up while there's people that were still alive at the time to dispute it. And so we can say with confidence that these eyewitness accounts that we, I mean, we read nine of them just a minute ago by seven different authors talking about the witnesses of this event all of the New Testament agrees on the death and resurrection. You may hear someone talk about, oh, there's contradictions in the Bible. Not on the death and resurrection, there's not. And that is the basis of our hope. If they want to dispute other stuff, I mean, we can talk about that too. But let's first, you know, show me somebody that can disprove that the entire New Testament scripture, despite all its different authorship and everything, does not consistently say that Jesus died 
and rose again. Because that's where my hope is. That this man died for my sins and rose from the dead. So I believe when men like John wrote letters and said, what we've seen with our eyes and what we've touched, what we've heard with our own ears, this is what we share with you about this Jesus. And so I believe, not not just because this Bible says so, but because multiple ancient documents written by multiple authors all agree. So, we have our statement. I believe Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. And it's not just because the Bible says so, it's better than that. And then we follow it up with this. Read it with me. I believe it because multiple eyewitness accounts were recorded in multiple ancient documents by multiple authors all agreeing on that one thing. Now, when you leave today, we're going to hand you a card that's going to have all three of these one-line statement things. You know, you've got the, I believe Jesus died for my sins and rose again. We can all, I mean, we have that memorized already. And then there's that next line that says, but it's not just because the Bible says so, it's better than that. You probably have that line memorized already. But then there's this longer one. And if you've got a note card right now, and I thought you might just make yourself a note about this so that later when you get your card to take home, you can use this if you want to help, want help memorizing. And on the back of this, would you just write four A's? Four A's. And that'll make sense to you in a second. Just write four A's. It's a note to yourself that when you get that note card, you're going to circle the four A's that I underlined up here. And I think this will help you memorize. If you can just memorize these four words that all start with A, then this sentence can come together in kind of whatever form you want it to, and it'll still make sense. So the four A's being eyewitness accounts, ancient documents, authors, and agreeing. So you're trying to get something together that sounds like, uh, well, there's multiple eyewitness accounts, in multiple ancient documents written by multiple authors that all agree on that one thing, that Jesus died for my sins and rose again. That's why I believe. It's better than just the Bible says so. It's better than just, you know, well, there's this sacred book and and I just believe it because it says so. We believe it because eyewitnesses saw it happen. And it was recorded for us. Again, I mean... Every other religion would love to have that kind of documentation. They would. I mean, most of them, it's, they've got one book written by one guy that had a vision, or, or you know, some angels handed him a tablet, and no one else saw it. Or, I mean, that, that's how most religions are started. Or they're just concocted in a sci-fi novel, and then everyone believed it. It's <laughs> some bizarre stuff out there that... I mean, talk about having to have faith. Everything you believe, whether you're being skeptical about Christianity or whether they're, you know, accepting Christianity or whether they're taking another religion, everything takes faith. Every belief system has faith. If you don't believe in Christianity, then you have to have faith that this is it. 
I mean, if you don't, you know, if you're an atheist, uh, you know, you have to have faith that after this, you're just going to fertilize the ground. That's it. And you're, you're putting your faith in that. You're taking a risk on that. Our faith is at least not dumb faith or just blind faith. It's based on what multiple people recorded multiple witnesses saying that they saw who then went on and gave their lives for their faith and risked their lives for their faith and took it across the world now I want to back this up a second as well because you know another thing that gets criticized a lot is the Old Testament you know, and, and it's easier maybe to talk about the New Testament because and easier to defend the New Testament but people in in our culture especially, they don't like... Uh, well, we just got done with a series on judges, right? And all that violence and crazy... It's some crazy stuff in the Old Testament. <laughs> read at your own risk. You, know, be, you probably should wait till you're 18 to read some of that stuff. But uh, <laughs> what can we say about the Old Testament based on what we talked about today? If someone says to you, you know, well, I don't... What do you make of all that Old Testament stuff? You know, I just don't see how a God of the Old Testament, you know, so violent, and the God of the New Testament so loving. Which um, there's lots of things we could say about that. That's not entirely true, but think of it like this. And this is going to be on the back of your card as well. We believe that the Old Testament is worthwhile. We believe that it is important because Jesus did. I mean, Jesus quoted it. Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law of the Old Testament, but to fulfill it, to make it perfect, to give it, in, to put it in the right perspective. Jesus' disciples went on to teach that all of the Old Testament scriptures are good for teaching and admonishing, should be used in the worship services of the church. So. We believe that the Old Testament is important, worthwhile. We believe it's truth because Jesus did. And we believe that Jesus did and that he is who he says he was because of all those eyewitness accounts that we just talked about. Does that make sense? So it's built on each other. Now, we live in a world, as we've said, where there's a lot of people struggling with all this kind of stuff. And especially our younger generations have been, have been struggling with this for a long time. And the church's response has largely been inadequate because we do just keep saying, well, the Bible says so, the Bible says so. And then these kids go off to college and some professor punches a couple of holes in what they thought they knew about the Bible, raises some questions, and once the Bible starts to crumble in their minds, then their whole faith goes out the window. And our response to that has, again, just been, well, those liberal professors won't leave our kids' faith alone. Well, instead of complaining about it, why don't we help 
our kids defend their faith. I read, there's an article you can find online. It's a you know there's, everybody's a blogger now. I, you know anyone can write the news and anyone can write anything that they want and people read it and it gets popular. It's just unbelievable. But anyway, this girl Jessica Meisner was one of those kids, a youth group kid, went to college, went to grad school, took a class that she knew was going to be you know touchy on her, but she said no I. I Cling to my faith. There's nothing going to shake my faith. And she got into this grad school experience. And, and uh, that's what happened. Some holes got punched in a couple of things. She said, wow, there's some inconsistencies here with the translations. And, you know, just some, some of that kind of stuff. And she said, well, I, if I can't believe that this is completely infallible and inaccurate, well, then my whole faith is shot. And so she just rejected God, rejected faith. And then later down the road wrote this article that says she misses being a Christian. Said she was a nicer person back then. Life was better. I'm thinking, you know, just if you think you're deluded, just go ahead and just keep living the life. You know, sometimes if life was better that way, just... Anyway. Her story is not uncommon. And so especially, you know, for all of us, but especially to those of you, some of you are just starting college, right? And you're entering this new season of life, and you're going to different colleges, you're taking different kinds of classes, and at some point, odds are, either one of your friends, someone that you meet, you know, at school, or one of your professors is going to bring up stuff that you haven't heard before, and it's going to maybe send your mind reeling a little bit. And so I just want to give you two things. And I believe these are on your note cards. These are for all of us because you never know. You may get a new colleague that walks into work tomorrow that happens to be an atheist and is adamant about trying to break down everyone else's faith. You don't know when you're going to face skepticism and things like that. So I want to tell you a couple of things. Just words of advice. The first one is, remember that the Bible is greater than one book. You can just fill in your blank with the greater than sign. I think I left my water over here. I'm getting thirsty. You can fill it in with the greater than sign or you can write in greater than or however you want to do it. It's your card. Do as you wish. But remember that the Bible is greater than one book. You know, if they point out to you that you know, this verse doesn't match up with this verse, or this thing in the Old Testament, you know, that says that um, the earth is flat, and clearly we know that the earth is round, so, you know, the, the Bible's a bunch of crock. <laughs> Remember that the Bible, this is just a good place to start, is more than one book. If they get you doubting one verse in here, they still have to get you doubting thousands more across 66 different books. Specifically, since our hope ultimately rests on Jesus Christ having died and risen from the dead, they'll need to disprove all of those books and all those multiple ancient documents recording multiple eyewitnesses written by multiple authors all before those people had passed away, all agreeing that Jesus died and rose again. And after they comprehensively disabuse you of all of that, then come talk to me, all right? Which is number two. 
Don't hold it in. Talk it out. And I think this is where so many people get messed up. When they start having doubts, they don't feel like they can talk to anyone about it. Because then they'd be labeled a doubter. They can't bring it up in class. They can't, you know, in a Sunday school class or something. They just can't walk into their church and say, Hey, you know, I heard this. Because everyone's going to say, Oh, heresy. <laughs> That's what they're afraid of, right? I mean, you wouldn't just, you're, you're scared to bring stuff up. We're scared to. We don't want to seem like the doubting Thomas. But friends, that's where the trouble lies. We listen to the skeptics as they pick at our faith. But then we just hold it inside because we don't feel like we can share it with anyone or talk, talk it out with anybody. We don't have a safe place to go. And so we hold it inside and we hold it inside and it gnaws away at us until we just leave. So especially to those of you who are about to enter college or you just entered college and you deal with, when you get to this point where at some point someone calls something into question and it's gnawing at you, go to somebody that you can trust. You can call me because I'm not scared of this kind of stuff. <laughs> Clearly I'm talking about it today. You can call me up and you can say, hey, this is what they said. I'm wrestling with this and we'll wrestle with it together. I'm not promising I have all the answers pre-made, but we can research it together and we can find out what we can find out. But don't just listen to one side of the story and then hold it in while it gnaws away at you. Too many people have done it, and your faith is worth more than that. And it deserves both sides of the story, at least. Sound good? All right. Well... Just want to say... This stuff, you know, is pretty important. I mean, like we've been saying, our whole faith rests on this. And it's not a blind faith, and we need to know that. We need to know that we have good reason to believe. It's not, it's better than just the Bible tells me so. Let's pray together. The band's going to come up. Father, we thank you for your word. Recorded through the ages. All consistently communicating your loving mission on our behalf. God, forgive us for the times we've struggled with doubts. But also... Forgive us for the way that we've sometimes treated the doubters. Holy Spirit, help our faith. And God, equip us to help the faith of others in a world that's full of skepticism. Amen.